In this episode of Startups with the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about nine key takeaways from MicroConf 2019. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 439. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So we're this week, man. You sound a little tired. It's mostly the voice. It's just a little scratchy. So yeah. I'm, I am a little tired, but uh, you know it could be worse. <laughs> I mean, after seven days in Vegas, that'll do it to you. That's the thing, right? Normally, we, we record this, this MicroConf recap episode the week after, or at least a day or two after MicroConf. And this year, due to my travel schedule, I'm heading to London in a couple of days. We basically have been in Vegas for six and seven days, respectively. And Voices are shot and all the things. So hopefully it'll go well. I think we're, aren't we also uh, both drinking rye whiskey right now? Yes, it's a whistle pig rye. It's a, well, it's, it's called whistle pig, but it's a rye whiskey and it's, um, it's quite nice. It's a, they make it up in Vermont. Yeah, it's very nice. So this will be a fun episode. I have some takeaways that I pulled away from starter and growth, see how many we can get through. What's new with you in terms of, uh, you know, the past week hanging out here at MicroConf? Well, one thing I noticed that was a sort of a recurring theme was that I saw people increasing their prices all over the place, which was kind of interesting there. I was at a conversation at the, uh, like sitting outside of where Starter Edition was happening. There there were several people around the table and one of them had been convinced to double his prices on the spot. So uh, they they basically made him open up his laptop, change the pricing on his website and then uh, shut down his laptop. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, there was someone else that did that. Someone 12X'd their pricing. They were obviously priced quite a bit too low, and they said that sales continued to come in after doing that. And I heard a rumor, I mean, you may confirm or deny, that uh, Bluetech's pricing might be rising soon. Yes, it, it will be going up in the very near future. Actually, probably by the time this podcast goes live, uh, prices will be tripling. That's the way to do it. But we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, it's it's an experiment like anything else, but that's what you want to know is, is that price too high or is it not? Right. Yeah. And for me, obviously, I had a, had a great week here. Super inspiring to see, you know, up and coming entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs and have my laptop charger fail in the middle of the conference. The nice part is we don't, you know, you, we used to run the conference off of our laptops. And in this case, we did not. But it was it was a trip. I have a new MacBook. And so I needed the USB-C charger and not many people have one. So it just, the brick died, the cables all worked. And so I was like borrowing, begging, ceiling and borrowing throughout throughout the conference to keep my laptop charged. Yeah. I thought that was funny that, you know, of all the things that you had more than one of, the one thing you didn't was the actual brick itself. That's the thing. I literally have extra this cable, extra that cable. I have uh, two things of chapstick. I have two or three phone and and iPad chargers. Like I carry multiples of everything, but I don't bring an extra brick because it's the heaviest piece. And I've never had one go out on me before like this at a time when I needed it. So it's kind of funny. Actually, I love this. I just saw on Twitter that there's a photo proof of you sitting down on the job while I do all the work. Oh, that's (laughs) fast. Go, Go look for that. You had this whole list of things to do at the end of the conference. And I didn't really know it. Normally we pass them back and forth and I just kind of hung out. It was good. Tom Sawyer in full effect. (laughs) 
So MicroConf is the conference you and I started in 2011. It's for self-funded founders and now even um, some not so self-funded founders with the kind of rise of folks like Carthook and, and Leadviews who take small rounds of funding, but it's, it's bootstrappers at heart. And we split the conference three years ago. And so this week we ran back-to-back conferences. So Monday, Tuesday is MicroConf growth. We had around, I believe, 265 um, total attendees, including uh, speakers, sponsors, and attendees. And at Starter, which was the, the two days following Wednesday, you know, Wednesday Thursday, 180 people. Uh, ran it at least this year and last year at the Tropicana in Las Vegas. I think a goal that we made while we were here is to do it somewhere other than Las Vegas next year. Yes, that would be quite nice, I think. We have, we have tried to do that many, many times, and every time it, it, it winds up being so expensive to move out of here. I mean, that's the, that's kind of the trap of Vegas is it's relatively easy to get to and the hotel and the, the venue and the, you know, the rooms, like just everything is not that expensive. And it's like a less than a 10 minute drive from the airport. It's all these things that make it, I don't know, it, it's seductive, you know, cause if you look at San Diego, for example, it's like more expensive and it's a 45 minute drive, you know, from the, the airport to, to a hotel. But I think I'm at the point where I'm just kind of ready to pony up and, and realize it's not going to be, it's not going to have all the pros of Vegas, but we will give up the con, which is it's in Las Vegas. It's in Vegas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's dry here and people are, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you feel, but I'm, I think you can probably tell by our voices. They're not the usual uh, perky, you know, startups for the rest of us, Rob and Mike today. Yep. So we're going to be Walking through, let's see, we have nine takeaways, give or take. We might wind up with eight or ten, but takeaways from MicroConf. You know, we're going to look at both growth and starter. We obviously don't have time to go through every talk. I believe we had, let's see, 19 session, 19 speakers or Q&A folks, not including the 12 attendee talks, so 31 talks. So, of course, we couldn't possibly cover those in a podcast episode. But if you're interested in seeing a, an awesome recap in writing, written by Christian Jenko. It's microconfrecap.com. You can go there and see his notes of all the sessions. But for now, let's dive into actually our first talk of the entire you know conference. It was Chris Savage, co-founder of Wistia. And the takeaway I took away from Chris was know what you're getting into when raising funding. It's interesting because you could have watched his talk and thought about, you know, funding is bad. But I don't think that's the message. It was that they didn't think it through when they raised their funding. The, the talk title was How an Offer to Sell Inspired Us to Take on $17 Million in Debt. And the story of, uh, you know, of Wistia, they blogged about it as well, is that they raised funding because it just seemed like the right thing to do. They followed the typical venture path. They actually had pretty high expenses because they were video hosting, obviously. And they weren't really aware of bootstrapping, from what I understand. So they raised multiple rounds. And at a certain point, they got an offer to sell Wistia. But they really thought it over and they kind of agonized and said, if we sold it, we'd probably just start like another Wistia. Like that's, this is really the space we want to be in and we don't necessarily want to, to exit this. But once they realized that, they realized they had a responsibility to their investors of like, look, if we never sell, how, you know, how do they get a return? Now, one thing, he never thought about pulling dividends out, but I guess that's, I, they're probably a C-corp and, and frankly, their investors probably didn't want that. And I guess that's, the, that's been the thing lately with alternative funding, right? The Indy.VC and, and Tiny Seed is that from the start, we're set up that if you wanted to just do dividends and run it and not sell, it works. If you decide to sell, it works. And that's the optionality. You know, I don't, I don't feel like Wistia had. 
Yeah, I think that your your take on it is a little different than mine, where you had said that, you know, you know what you're getting into when raising funding. I took it more as a, a revelation on their part that they realized after a while, after they'd taken the funding, I mean, and obviously well after that, because it was, I think they were funded in 2008 or 2009. Well, after that, like things changed and they decided that they wanted something different. So because of that change, because of the way that they viewed things was different, the original path no longer suited them. So they had to look for ways to change that. That's how I interpreted it. But I I could definitely see how there's probably three or four different ways that his talk could be interpreted. And I don't think any of them are bad. It's just that it, whatever lessons you take away from it, I think are going to be great because it was a fantastic talk. It was well put together. And I do think that the story of what they went through and, and how they got there is just interesting in and of itself. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, to be honest, Chris Savage was uh, kind of a, a longtime aspiration you know, of mine to get to MicroConf, so it was super cool to have him here this year. Our second session was, uh, it wasn't a talk, it was Q&A with Jason Freed. And I felt like the takeaway from there was know what you're good at and make sure to double down on that. And what's interesting is, is already, you know, we have some, some ratings and reviews and such coming in because we send a survey out at the end of the conference. And typically Q&A sessions are they're ranked in the middle. You know, they're not, they're not at the top. They're not at the bottom. Sometimes they are at the bottom, depending. But Jason's Freed is probably the highest rated Q&A session we've ever had. And I, I think that his authenticity and kind of just his honesty really came out. He answered some pretty fascinating questions about, about Basecamp, about what, you know, what it was like to get started, about why it grew so fast. I mean, at one point I asked him, why did it grow so fast? And he said, we don't know. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. Like, thank you for saying that and not acting like it was that you were super smart or that you knew what you were doing. He's just like, yeah. We, and at a certain point, he said, we got a little lucky. We had some good timing. And we did some things right as well. And it's like, that is a fantastic assessment. Yeah, and I think that that's the position a lot of successful people are in. One thing that had come up during the Q&A was that the fact that Basecamp, or originally it was 37 Signals, and then they launched Basecamp and HiRise and Tadalist and several other products, they looked at trying to sell HiRise, which was making, you know, obviously millions of dollars at the time, and they could not find a buyer because of the fact that they didn't want to let the team that was working on it go with it. They just wanted to sell the code base and the revenue stream and customers and all that other stuff to somebody else, and nobody was willing to pay for it. And I, I made sure that I had him kind of clarify that. It's like, so this this code base was worth nothing without the team behind it. And he's like, yeah, it, it was. Code base plus revenue stream, you know? Yeah. And because we get a lot of questions to the podcast about how much effort should I put into protecting my code and making sure that people aren't stealing it? If I hire a contractor, like, what do I do? And to have Jason Freed come out and say that the code and the revenue stream behind it were worthless without the team behind it. That's just, I mean, that's just a huge, a big answer, I think, to that question that continues to come up. Yeah. And I, you know, I wouldn't say it was worthless. What he said, they got offers. They were just super low without the team. He said, we didn't want to give it away. So to make up numbers, you know, if, if you had an app doing a million dollars a year and if you gave, you know, if you brought the team with it, you could get 5 million. And if you didn't bring the team, you could get 1 million. I get the feeling it was that kind of situation where it's not that it's worthless, but it's worth a lot, lot less. Yeah. He did turn my, down my offer. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, didn't you, you offered to buy it for the, the money in your pocket. Yes, I did. I had like a, I had like a hundred bucks, maybe two. I don't know. <laughs> he graciously declined. Yeah, that was cool. Yes. 
Later in MicroConf, we had a speaker who had to, who had to cancel last minute. Um, she actually made it to Las Vegas and then had a, a personal issue come up and had to leave. And, you know, big thanks to Patrick McKenzie, also known as Patio11 on the internet, for filling in and talking about things that Silicon Valley companies do well. He basically wrote a talk in 24 hours. And, he, you know, he contrasted, um, he said, we can throw stones at Silicon Valley. Yes, it does a lot of things wrong, there's no doubt. But there are certain things that, that they're pretty good at. And we won't, you know, dig into all the points of his talk. I think the biggest thing that I took away or the one that impacted me most when he was talking is something that, like, a boss said to him at some point at, at Stripe. And the question was, after a 45-year career, what do you want to be true? You know, and I would rephrase that almost like, what do you want to feel or have accomplished looking back on your entire working career? And I think this is a great question to think about its legacy, you know, and this is something I have thought about, not in depth and extensively. When I think about legacy, it's interesting. I think much more about this podcast and, and microconf and blogs and books than I do about the actual companies I've started. And it's interesting to think, I bet Jason Fried thinks about his legacy is probably Basecamp. You know, maybe it's the books that they've written as well, but it's just interesting to think that, you know, different people have different answers for this. I don't think there's a right or wrong, but figure it out for yourself and then every day make a bit of progress towards that. Yeah, I, I definitely think that this is the type of question that should make it onto the list of questions that you're going to ask yourself at a personal retreat. But one of the other aspects of that was that what does it mean after that 45 years? And I think Patrick had said, and you can correct me if I'm misremembering this, but I think he had looked at it and said, hmm, well, you know, what does that mean to me and how would I quantify it? And how I think his basic assessment of how he was going to quantify it was how much impact he's had on other people over the course of that 45 years and what it means kind of collectively to give himself sort of a numeric score, so to speak. And I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it as well. And, you know, everybody could do it in any way that they want, but I just thought it was an interesting way to, for him to kind of quantify what that meant to him. Yep. And then, and then we had a talk from Hannah Vervak. Um, she's the COO of Thrive Themes. And the takeaway I had from her was don't build what your customers ask for. Really, it's don't only build or just build it. You can get a mess. We've talked about that a little bit on the podcast in the past. But basically, she talked through handling feature requests. They get hundreds and hundreds of them each month. And she talked about instead of implementing every feature customers ask for, do one-on-one -on -one customer calls on a call, you know, shut up and listen, ask questions, blah, blah, blah. And she had kind of a cool process for, I think, for, for handling that. As someone, you know, in our, our last couple of years at Drip, as it kept ramping up, yeah, we were getting probably 100 to 150 a month when we got acquired. And it was at least double that uh, by the time I left. And so we had to figure out a way to do this as well. So I liked hearing her approach and her thoughts on this. Yeah, the cool thing about when she was uh, discussing that it was was really the it was a, a nice way of saying that customers don't always know what should be built. Like they have an idea of like, oh, this is how you should solve the problem. But the reality is that like you should dig into that and find out what what problem they're actually trying to solve as opposed to listening to them and implementing things that they say, oh, you should be doing this or I need a feature that does that. If you start digging in and trying to figure out, you know, more of a jobs to be done type of thing, then you're going to be much better off than you just kind of blindly implement it, which I think is intuitively obvious to most people. But at the same time, your customers don't know all the other things that are going on. And quite frankly, you may not even agree with them. You may decide, well, yes, that, that sounds great and all, but it's just not the right direction for the 
business or for the company or the product, and you may decide to ignore them because of that. And the customers absolutely do not have all the information, and sometimes you have to overrule them. And I wrapped up the first day with my talk that was titled The State of Bootstrapping in 2019, and I looked at some trends that have changed over the past 14 years since I you know, started talking about all this stuff, and then a bunch of things that have stayed the same. And I talked about, I think the takeaway from that I pulled from there is kind of there's more competition these days, but there are also more funding options. And I definitely still am wholeheartedly a, a bootstrapper at heart and believe that the bootstrapping and self-funding are totally viable ways to go. But you know, given that that there is more competition, there's enormous, you know, some of those graphs I had with just enormous amounts of VC funding being poured into SaaS in general. We as a community, like you and I with the podcast and the conference, we're kind of early to SaaS, right? And now the the big money is coming in over the past, you know, eight or nine years. And something I'm talking about is like more funding options are available and that funding is no longer binary. You know, you can look at someone like a lot of the the kind of angel investments I've done where they literally plan to raise a single round. They're not going to raise institutional funding. They don't have a board. They never plan to go public or, or be, have a unicorn exit. So they technically raised money, but they're still very capital efficient. And they're using this money to reach escape velocity with their startup faster and maybe a little less painfully than the two to three years that it's, we often now see it taking for a truly bootstrap SaaS to do that. Yeah, I think that there definitely has to be a discussion in our circles around what the terminology actually ends up being, because I think that that's a source of confusion for a lot of people. If you spend all of your own money on it or you do it on credit cards, is that self-funding? Well, I guess technically, but at the same time, if you build a product up and then sell it outright to somebody else and you get a pile of money and then you put it into your next product, is that self-funding? Is that bootstrapped? Well, I don't know. What, is, what does that actually mean? So I think there's going to be some discussions over the next, you know, coming months or years about, you know, some subtle changes to how we view some of the terms like bootstrapping and self-funding and, you know, maybe bootstrapping becomes more of a state of mind than anything else. Yeah, I would agree. And frankly, I wonder if the terms are, you know, how important they actually are. I think they're helpful to give context to things when you start a talk and you say, look, I'm a bootstrapper. This is how I think about things. That's helpful. Versus if I stood up there and said, look, I've raised VC funding, then take my advice in that context, right? So that's why I think it's helpful. I, but I do think it's unhelpful in that people sometimes get dogmatic about this stuff. And I do not think the, you should never raise funding. You should, VC is the worst ever, you know, or bootstrapping. It's just terrible. Why would you even do that? I mean, I, I've heard people say this and, and I don't think that's helpful to do the always never should game. It's like, let's keep open minds and realize that this is probably, not probably, this is now a continuum, right? There is bootstrapping where I literally have $50 to start it and it has to grow upon, on its own revenue. That's very hard. Self-funding is the next you know, thing to the right, I will say. It's the next notch over where it's like, yeah, I had 200 grand to pump into this business or $100,000 of my own money. It's a little different. It's a different situation than bootstrapping. I've done both. I know it's very different. And then perhaps the next step over is taking you know, a small amount of funding from TinySeed or Indy.VC or a funding source that maybe isn't expecting you to get huge and you can still build a profitable business selling you know, real product to real customers. And then maybe the next notch over is venture capital. Or maybe there's even a notch in between. But those are, that's the thing. It's not binary anymore. Yeah. And I, I feel like maybe some people 
get too hung up on the terminology because it feels like their identity is being attacked. It's like, oh, I'm a bootstrapper and you're not. And it's it's not, as you said, like it's not binary anymore. It used to be, but now it's not. So I think there's maybe something of an identity crisis going on. But, you know, I, I definitely think there's going to be talks and discussions about that behind closed doors. And, you know, maybe we'll come out with something or maybe it'll just kind of be a perpetual issue for the next 20 years. I don't I don't know. Another talk, kind of a last one we'll, we'll cover with growth, uh, Joanna Weeb, who's been a many-time MicroConf speaker. The takeaway I took from her is that words matter. So she talked about copywriting, and she ran through seven words that work well in copy. We won't go through them here because rattling them off isn't going to help you. It's probably something where you want to watch the talk when it gets there or look at, at Christian Kenko's notes at microconfrecap.com just to see uh, what she talked about and how she presented it. And next up, we had Starter, and I think that we both wanted to say a big thank you to Ben Ornstein for being the MC. I think he did a fantastic job, and it's interesting because his talk was actually last of the conference. Usually, in the past two years when we've had an MC, the talks that the MC gave, they were the first talk, and then they were the MC for the rest of it, whereas Ben, he did the entire conference as the MC, and then he got up and spoke, which, I mean, that's just a testament to his ability to get up there in front of everybody. Yeah, and his talk was great. I mean, he he always brings it entertaining, witty, charming. It's almost like Ben's tall. here in the room and I'm talking to him. Yeah, exactly. Tall. <laughs> what did I say? The man with the plan. He's six foot five with a tan. No, it was, you know what I liked about his talk is it was, he didn't even try to pull too many actionable bits out of it, although there were, uh, there was advice and such. It was just a really well-told story. And I was, ca- I know the story. I've listened to every episode of their podcast. And yet, you know, I sat there and listened just kind of uh, riveted by how he would talk about the learning from this and how they did this experiment. And uh, he just set it up so well. So that's honestly, that's another one where it's like, we couldn't do it justice in five bullet points. That's one where you need to watch the video when it comes out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I love the story that and the way that he told it and how some things came together really well. And some things are like, oh, we, we discovered this along the way. And who knew? I mean, you know, some of the, the lessons were, I won't say they're, they were obvious, but they're obvious in hindsight. It's like, oh, yeah, that was probably going to be an issue. And nobody really thought about it. Right. And just to be clear, we didn't mention his podcast. It's called The Art of Product Podcast. And his product is called Tuple, T-U-P-L-E, which is a, a pair programming SaaS. Another talk we had, it was on the first day of Starter, was from Abi Noda. And the takeaway I got from him was start quickly by building on someone else's platform. And now he also talked about how there's risk in doing that, platform risk, right, where you're dependent on them and they could potentially implement a feature and put you out of business. But I like that he's at 21K MRR. He's only been doing it for how long is it? Eight months? Nine months? It's not that long. Yeah, I think it was a little over a year. Okay. So it's, but it's pretty quick for a solo founder with no employees. And I don't even think he has contractors to be at 21K MRR. I mean, that's, that's life-changing, man. And, and the other thing is he, he talked multiple times about how he's doing things wrong. He's like, I'm not sure about my pricing. I don't actually think it's, it's optimal. But enough things are working that he's at 21K MRR. You know, and maybe if he optimized, he could, that could be 30 or 40, and that's great. He can do that. But at this point, he's bought his own freedom and that's what I liked about that story is he was pretty, he didn't get up there and say, I did everything right. And look at what all I did. He's like, I did some things wrong and it still worked. And, you know, I think the fact that he built on GitHub, he has a GitHub add-on 
that notifies you when there's pull requests that need reviews, it notifies you via Slack. So he's in the GitHub marketplace and that was kind of his you know, big marketing approach. And it, it was funny because you know when I, when I talk about stair-stepping and how there's step one, two, and three, he combined step one and three. Step one is that one-time downloadable product with a single traffic source. And then step three is recurring revenue. And he has recurring revenue, but it's you know, a single traffic source in essence. I mean, I know he has some other traffic, but most of it is focused on, uh, on GitHub marketplace. Yeah, the I did find it interesting that the the way he opened his talk was the fact that he got fired it was like the day before Christmas or something like that, and it's just it was kind of a life changing event for him. And he's like, okay, well now what do I do? And it took him a little while before he kind of figured out like, well, I kind of wanted to do this and you know launch my own thing, and then he did it. And you know there were a bunch of mistakes that he made along the way, and things changed for him as he made tweaks to the business and as he basically just improved things. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget is that it just launching is not the end of the story. That's not even the, the destination or the goal. Like that's the beginning of it. That's where you start to learn things and where the rubber hits the road and you're able to start adjusting what it is that you do and hear from customers and tweak the business. Another good talk was from Leanna Patch, a returning microconf speaker. The takeaway I had from her talk was don't make stupid copywriting mistakes. She actually talked, covered a lot of topics, but the, the stupid copywriting mistakes section was cool. She talked about having me-centric copy. So instead of having you and your, it has a lot of I'm and, and we and me. She talked about writing like a robot, sentences that were too complicated, trying to do too much, and then cliches and nonsense phrases and had you know a, a bunch of lists of those. And again, microconfreecap.com if you want to see the specifics of that. But Leanna is in the trenches. She runs punchline copy and is on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis is writing a lot more copy than you or I, frankly. And so she really, you know, is, is in the weeds on how this stuff should be done. She actually wrote the copy for bluetick.com, didn't she? Yes, she did. And she wrote a couple of emails in the email sequence as well. So I gave her uh, access to the, all the notes and stuff that I had taken from all the customer interviews and uh, customer development that I'd done. And she took that and she translated it into the copy for the website. She also went through and tweaked all the, the email, onboarding emails and the educational emails that I put out there. And so basically overhauled the entire thing. And honestly, it's, it's doing its job. It's, it's doing really, really well. That's cool. And I realized I just said bluetick.com, but you're bluetick.io. Sorry about that. Yeah, bluetick.io. Your website looks great. I just went to it. It looks really good. I have not seen it redesigned. How long ago did that happen? Oh, that was a while ago. That was, uh, we talked about that on the podcast. That was probably close to a year ago. Did we? I don't remember it. Yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, probably, I mean, there's been little tweaks and stuff. It depends on what you've seen. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, the design is just, it's far superior to my memory of what Blue Tick was. So my memory must be, uh, must be dated at this point. Uh, yeah, I had it redone, I think, just before the last MicroConf. But yeah. So, Mike, do you hear the music in the background? We are on the 21st floor of a hotel in Las Vegas. Yeah, I, it, you know, it's interesting. I almost feel like there should be like security coming over and kicking you out because you're wearing flip-flops and you look too old to be here. Yeah, exactly. Wait a minute. I'm not doing either of those things. Hey, sir, I did not look too old. All right, I do a little bit. Don't you remember when that happened at the Hard Rock? Yep. They were filming. Weren't they filming some type of like, it was like an MTV something or other at the pool. And I think what it was, now they didn't say it out loud that we were too old. And this was a few years ago, but uh, we were in beach gear. I was wearing like jeans and a t-shirt with flip-flops. And they wanted you to be in like full on, just no shirt, swim trunks, totally ripped abs, the whole deal. And so they actually would not <laughs> let us walk on the, sorry, sir, we're filming. Really? 
What are you filming? I, I think you should correct that. It's not us. It was you. It was it me. Was not you. <laughs> no, I was including you, man. Because we were both I sitting. wasn't there. I wasn't there. Uh, all right. Forget it. We didn't notice. We didn't go back to the Hard Rock the next year. That's true. That's true. Although they didn't demolish it later in later years. So I guess it's not that. I don't know. Little, little known fact. The hotel that the first microconf was at was demolished shortly thereafter because it was so old. So our, ne- our next talk was from Omar Zenholm, and he's from Webinar Ninja. And I, I thought this was actually a fascinating talk, mostly because there was one takeaway that I think just kind of trumped all others that you could possibly take away from that, which was you should build an audience before building a product. And if you don't have an audience, you just simply do not have a product. And there's no like nothing you can do is going to change that. Yeah, and I don't agree with him on that. I mean, I think he that's how he did it, and I appreciate his perspective of how he built the business using an audience, but I have seen too many founders who have built businesses without an audience. So do I agree that it makes it easier? Yes. Do I agree that, you know, maybe it's a thing you should do? Maybe. But if you're not that type of person, like, don't do that. I've known founders and, and many founders who have, like, amazingly successful businesses and did not start with an audience. Well, I, I maybe maybe I should qualify that a little bit better. Like, what I really mean, like, I agree with you that you don't need a audience before you start. Like, you don't have to build the audience before you build the product. But I do think that there is a certain amount of momentum that you kind of need to maintain over time. And doing that almost requires an audience. And that's not for every product, but I think for any product of some scale and complexity where it takes time to educate people and they're not going to be at the right point in order to to purchase your product at maybe three months or eight months out or maybe even two years, like you need to be able to keep them around. And the way to keep them around is through, you know, some sort of content marketing or education. And you're going to want to be able to catch them at that moment. And if you don't, it's going to be hard to scale your business to a much higher level than if you're just like you've got a product and you're only catching them at the time where they are, you know, experiencing that pain point enough to look, go look for a solution. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think of Salesforce and, or even maybe not Salesforce a bad uh, example, but think of just outbound cold email and companies that have grown doing that. Like they don't build an audience. I mean, I, I have talked to tiny seed applicants. They have zero audience. They actually have almost no traffic to their website. And yet they're doing several thousand in MRR and growing because they're just using other tactics, using traditional sales tactics. So in the you know, the internet marketer space or in the the SMB space, so to speak, it could be a potential thing. You know, Webinar Ninja is definitely going after SMBs. It's going after some aspirational entrepreneurs. It's going after a crowd where building an audience is super important and it's a great thing to leverage. But if you're not in that space, I would, I guess I would not, I would not wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. Sure. Yeah. And I guess maybe I said that more because that's the type of space that I, you know, I operate in now and that I would want to work with. And there's obviously certain ones where I wouldn't want to, and that I don't think would work there. <laughs> yeah, totally. The other thing I liked that Omar said there, he had one slide where he said, take things that are unique about you and make them your advantage. And so he talked about his name, how no one else has, you know, his name's Omar Zenholm. And that was a unique thing. He could rank in Google really easily for that. No one else was from Egypt. No one, I, he just talked a lot about himself about how he used that as a superpower. And I thought that was cool because I think it's something a lot of us, me included, try to fit in and try to not be unique for some reason because we feel like fitting in is important. But I actually like the sentiment of, you know, actually making your your unique thoughts, skills, and abilities your true advantage. 
And the last talk we'll cover in this episode is Asia Matos, who runs DemandMaven.io. And I really liked the fact that because of the split between Starter and Growth Edition, like she spoke at Starter Edition, and one of the great things about splitting the conference in two is that speakers can hone their talk to the audience. And she really honed it down to basically telling them, look, you know, there's lots of different pieces of your sales funnel, but if you want to get to your first hundred customers, you really need to focus on that bottom of the funnel and try and make sure that you are talking to them directly about your product and exactly what it can do. Because the middle of the funnel and top of the funnel, those are, you know, much broader areas to tackle and they're harder to do if you're not able to convert people at the bottom. And if you can't convert them at the bottom, adding more people into your sales funnel isn't going to change that It's going to, and it's not going to help. It will get you more customers, if, assuming you can add enough at scale. But if you're, the bottom of your funnel is so leaky that it doesn't really move the needle for you, then there's no point in trying to do that. So really focus on the bottom, optimize that, and that's really going to help you move forward. Yep, this is good, really good advice, and it's not talked about enough, and I'm glad that this was the point of her talk, really, is that people think they just need to send more people uh, you know, in, onto their website or, or into a trial, but if you're churning people out or if people are not going trial to paid or if people are not going visitor to trial, like you have to start at that bottom and work up. And, of course, you need enough traffic that you can do some type of testing with that, and the, the numbers make sense. But certainly scaling up and, and starting at the top of the funnel, it, it just doesn't make sense. So she, it was a dense talk in a good way. It was a lot of information. She actually compressed a longer talk down to fit in our speaking slot. And, you know, she really, I, I think she did a good job of covering how to get your first 100 customers. So... 17th and 18th microconfs are in the bag, sir. How do you feel? Tired. <laughs> Drunk. No, not but, yet. I know. We're like one one shot of this. is a good whiskey, though. Actually, uh, I'm on my second or third because uh, probably second right now. Because I'm in the other, I'm You're in the, the other, other room. room. <laughs> so we just just for yeah, inside baseball. Mike and I always record across the country, right? Or I guess at this point, you know, halfway across the country. And it's so weird when every five years we happen to be in the same place and we try to record and there's echo and all this stuff. So we're in the same hotel room, but it's a suite and I, we have a door closed between us. So it's uh, just a unique experience. For sure. And I did realize something. Did you think about the fact that MicroConf Europe is going to be the 19th MicroConf and then next year, Growth Edition will be the 20th? What a trip. How fitting. Yep. I had not thought about that at all. That's cool. Speaking of MicroConf Europe, it's in Croatia again at that amazing, ridiculously cool hotel where every room has an ocean view of the Mediterranean. And it is October 21st and 22nd of 2019 tickets will go on sale uh, they may already be on sale to the early bird list as you're listening to this but go to microconfeurope.com and enter your email if you're interested in potentially joining us and around 150 other software founders who are trying to get our stuff done well i think that about wraps us up for the day if you have a question for us you can call it into our voicemail number 1-888-801-9690 or you can email it to us at questions at startupsarrestos.com our theme music is an excerpt from Route of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestos.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.